Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. On today's episode, I speak with Julia Willison, Head of Learning and Participation at Royal Botanic Gardens Kew. We discuss Kew's inspiring manifesto, their 10-year strategy to end extinction crisis and protect nature. Julia shares with us the five key priorities, and we focus on Kew's desire to improve inclusivity and what initiatives have been formed to support the organisation in doing this. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Julia, it's really lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Kelly. Thank you for inviting me. So we're recording this right at the beginning of January. It's the 9th of January that we're recording it. So icebreakers have got a New Year's resolution theme because I thought we should talk about this. I want to know, do you set them? If so, what have you set yourself for this year? I do tend to set them. In my own mind, I I don't often share them, but I do set them. And this year I've um, set the resolution that I I want to start learning to play the piano. And I've actually had my first lesson. So, yeah, so I'm I'm really pleased with that. I love this. So we just had a little chat about this off air um, Mm. because that was one of the other icebreaker questions I was going to ask (laughs) you is what's the one thing that you've always wanted to learn? And then we had this conversation and and you're doing it already. And I was like, oh, this is great. So you've had your first lesson. And how did it go? Well, I found myself apologising to the teacher profusely because of my lack of ability to play the piano. But it went it went really well. And he was absolutely delightful, very supportive. And I learned quite a lot in the first lesson. So I'm I'm looking forward to the second lesson now. I've got I've got a lot start playing and practicing every day, uh, which I'm enjoying doing. That's the thing about learning something new is that you've got to make it a habit, haven't you? So you Mm -hmm, need to kind of, mm -hmm. this is the thing that I did about the gym. It's like I had to diarise it. So I had to make sure that it was like in in red, in my diary, immovable at the same time on those days that I could go. So you could do it. Are you going to do that with your your lessons and your and your um your your training well the lessons obviously will have to be in the in my um calendar but I have almost crossed the threshold where I made a decision to play the piano I've got a long-term goal that in you know maybe 10 years time I'll be able to play in a group or something like this so I'm I'm really committed to wanting to learn so we'll see you have to revisit this space maybe in five years time see if I'm still doing it right I'm popping you on the list for five years to to make sure that I check in with you that you've, you've achieved your goals okay um what is the worst thing that you've ever eaten or drunk well, eaten for me is mussels because I'm allergic to them oh wow so that 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 wasn't a very I only learned that through um obviously eating uh eating mussels and even just a small piece just made me incredibly sick uh drinking avocado Avoca- how do you say avocado avocado yeah is that I what can't... goes into into snowballs yes i can't think of anything worse actually oh, i love a snowball i had one <laughs> over christmas it... <laughs> you can have mine <laughs> i'll have your i'll have your mussels and your avocado <laughs> Oh, what a mixture! That's probably and probably not at the same time either. No. Um, yeah, I somewhat. Yeah, I was a, a friend's. We my friends did a Christmas party and they and, and we had a snowball and it was just like, wow, this is so retro. I can remember my grandparents drinking these when I was a child. Um, I will remember if you ever come to my house for a, for a, a Christmas party that that you are not to have the the snowballs. I'll bring my own, Kelly. <laughs> okay. Right. What's your unpopular opinion, Julia? Oh, well, I do feel 
I suppose strongly about is that, and I arrived at this um, um, opinion after talking to my children after after I had done this, and it says I don't think that people should post pictures of their children and friends on social media without their consent. Yes, yeah, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, and actually, at what point do you ask their consent? Because I post pictures of my daughter; she might not be mm-hmm. comfortable with me. Haven't she? Might not be happy with me. Her her face being over my Twitter account or my Instagram account. So yeah, I guess at some point we'll have that conversation. If she says no, that's it. No more pictures go up. Oh, sad. And the thing is, you can't take down the ones that you've already put up, can you? No. Well, I guess well. I guess you can go back and delete them from an Instagram account or delete them from your Twitter account. So you could go back and delete, but then they're out there. So that doesn't mean that they're not elsewhere mm. in, in in the ether. So hmm. interesting. Eh? It is interesting. Yeah, but I think you're right. I think absolutely for other people. I mean, I've definitely had this conversation with a friend of mine about we've been out together with our children and, and we've, we've both taken pictures and, and um She's actually asked my permission if she can post the pictures on her social media, but her platforms are quite her her uh, Instagram is a private Instagram account, for example. So she's happy to post pictures of her daughter on that, but her she's not happy for other people to post those pictures if they're not private accounts. So, mm. yeah, it is. It's a huge debate, isn't it? Well, it'd be interesting yeah. to see what people think. Um, how do you feel yeah. about this? People on Twitter, which is where we do a lot of our talking about this podcast. How do you feel about posting pictures of your of your children or your friends and your family on social media without having had their consent? Let us know. Could start a little Twitter debate there. <laughs> I'd be interested to read it. Right, Julia, tell us about your role at Q and what a typical day looks like for you. So I'm head of learning and participation at Q Gardens. And um, what I'm responsible for is providing leadership in this particular area at Q. And and wanting to position Q as a centre for excellence in plant and fungal science education. And under my remit comes formal learning. That's all the schools programmes and teacher training. So we've got about 90,000 school pupils that come on site um, each year. And we engage with about 200,000 online. Uh, we have a youth programme, which is growing. There's a a lot of demand there for young people to get involved in environmentally as well. Uh, families in early years, we we run programs for uh, for families, but up to seven year olds, specific sessions. Uh, we run community engagement, and that includes community horticulture. Uh, I'm responsible for the access programs across the site as well. Uh, that's for people who may have sensory needs or um, different access needs. Outreach learning as well. We have a national outreach learning program. And then slight anomaly is that the volunteers also sit with me. So we've got 800 volunteers across uh, Kew Gardens and Wakehurst. And the central function of that sits with my remit. So looking at some of the strategies around uh, what we're doing with volunteers and diversifying our volunteers, etc. So uh, so that's that's my remit. Quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's fantastic. I'm very lucky. And there's no one typical day. So but you can imagine, you know, well, I get going with a cup of coffee every day. Um and some 
sometimes I'll spend one day a week working from home, but the rest of the time I like to be on site. Um, Kew's got to be one of the most beautiful locations to work. I, I am so lucky. I know that. And I've probably got the best office in Kew. If you if you come okay. and visit Kelly, you'll see, see um, you know, that I that the office I have looks out over the Palm House of Kew, which is oh, the most wow. iconic glass house. You know, it was a glass house that was built between 1844 and 48, and it houses the tropical plants. So it is just the most amazing um, place to, to work. But back to my actual day and what I do, um, I attend a lot of meetings, as you can imagine, with my teams and staff across the organisation um, about operations sometimes and strategy and new and exciting projects that we're, we're, we're looking at what we can do. Uh, I sit on cross-organisational steering groups and committees that focus on public programmes. We have a strong focus on equality, diversity and inclusion across the organisation and safeguarding. I used to be the, well, I still am the designated, designated safeguarding lead for Q, so I'm, I'm involved in that still. And I also lead the um, steering group for Q on the outreach strategy and the school's learning strategy. And then uh, as well, I often work on preparing project proposals because funding is a, um, a major issue for our organisation. Mm-hmm. And so funding and, and reporting and then talking to potential donors. So that's that's my sort of typical day really yes. I I feel quite privileged that I get to speak to so many incredible women that have these hugely varied roles and do so much <laughs> in a day <laughs> very capable very capable people that I get to speak to so uh, it is quite it's quite humbling um we're going to talk quite a lot today about um a manifesto that Q implemented um mm. I'm just going to I'm just going to take you back. So I think it was in March 2021, mm-hmm. Royal Botanic Gardens Q launched a 10-year strategy to end extinction crisis and protect nature. And it's a really bold and an incredibly inspiring manifesto. I'm just going to read out the, um, the ethos of it. So the mission of Royal Botanic Gardens Q is to understand and protect plants and fungi for the well-being of people and the future of all life on Earth. Our aspiration is to end the extinction crisis and to help create a world where nature is protected, valued by all and managed sustainably. So this was back in 2021. How has the manifesto been implemented within the organisation? Like, how do you, how did it, how did it get created in the first place? And how does that kind of get explained and put into practice? Mm, Good question. So, so we started in the pandemic looking at the need to, build a new strategy because our old older strategy had had come to the was coming to the end and there was there had over the years has been a building of um staff in queue talking about wanting to see more urgency in the work that we do um or or to describe it in a more urgent terms um what we're trying to do at, at queue and so the pandemic while it was a, a terrible time it was a um, a time that Q took to step back and look at the bigger picture and then come together around this urgency of climate change and biodiversity loss. And there was a lot of consultation, a lot of iterations of the strategy that went out to to staff and to feed into this. I mean, so it, it was a significant job and um, there was a, a team, a small team of people that were working on it, taking the consultation back um, into in centrally. And then what emerged through the consultation were um, five key priorities that we then agreed 
or was agreed then um, for the next 10 years. And that was agreed then by the executive board and, and signed off by the board of trustees. And sh- shall I just, I'll mention the, the five priorities. And, do, and, I yeah. can, and I can give a, a few bits of examples of some of the work we do around those. And so the first priority is deliver science-based knowledge and solutions to protect biodiversity and use natural resources sustainably. Um, Q is primarily a scientific and horticultural organisation. And we struggle sometimes that many people see Q gardens as the gardens and don't see the science behind the gardens. The gardens are essential and they they contain precious um, plant collections. There is also science and research behind that. We've got over 400 scientists and about 150 horticulturalists. And so it's the bedrock of Q's contribution to uh, ending biodiversity and maintaining sort of healthy ecosystems. So there are lots of examples that I could give. You know, we have, um, people probably don't know this, we have a, a resource centre in Madagascar, Scientific Resource Centre, and scientists are there are working with the rural Malagasy people on food security and particularly on conserving yams uh, that are native to um, Madagascar. We work in over 120 countries, um, working with partners in Ethiopia to reduce biodiversity loss. The Ethiopian economy is depends very much on coffee, and some, something like 25% of the population rely uh, directly or, or indirectly on coffee for their livelihood. And so... Q is working with partners to maintain traditional forest-based areas where coffee grows natively, and that is proving vital for sustainability and all you know for livelihoods and also for for um, biodiversity. Uh, closer to home, we have scientists here at Q working on the chemistry of nectar and pollen, because many bee species in the UK there are around two hundred and forty different species of bees in the UK. So honeybees are just one species. You know, there's lots of different bumblebees, lots of different native bee species. And they're under threat because of climate change from disease and parasites. So what scientists here identify in plants that have compounds in the nectar and pollen that could help all bees themselves manage their own diseases more sustainably. So that's an important area of research. Uh, Q's also as part of the manifesto, we're digitizing our collections. We've got about a quarter of the way through digitizing 8.25 million preserved plant and fungal specimens. So it's an e- enormous task and 200,000 botanical illustrations. Uh, what else are we doing? Um, we have a sister site. I don't know if you know this, Kelly. We have a sister site at Wakehurst. It's our wild botanic garden in, in West Sussex. Mm-hmm. And it's a site of... Um, excellence really in conservation um, and science. We, it's home to the Millennium Seed Bank, where we've banked something like 2.4 billion seeds from more than 40,000 plant species. Mm. And so there's a project being run at Wakers called Nature Unlocked. And that's using the landscape of Wakers, which is about two kilometers squared, as a living laboratory. And the idea is to collect high science, uh, quality scientific um, evidence of the value of biodiversity in the soil as well as in the landscape uh, this evidence to inform land management policies and practices um, so that can then key develop you know decision makers can then use this evidence to make informed decisions about what they do um, around the land 
that that's just and that's so those just are, one that's just one yeah. point that yeah sorry point so i'll be i'll be quicker with, i'll be quicker with the others no, so like, please, no, please feel free to share like don't don't, don't hold back but it's quite mind-blowing isn't it how much that you do that people just aren't aware of yeah this is just a very s- small snapshot you know i mean i could have taken any one of hundreds of examples of what science scientists here at Q are doing. Um, the second priority is inspire people to protect the natural world. And that really is threaded through all our public engagement work. And that's going from our uh, festivals, our exhibitions, um, all the interpretive panels we do, the website, our social media, all the learning and participation programs we do. So we we use this as a lens to look through and to make sure that our work, the work we're doing is or checking ourselves that we are inspiring people to protect the natural world. Um, we, uh, I mentioned earlier, we have a, a national outreach program that's, and, and this program is inspiring communities to take action for biodiversity, specifically through transforming their local spaces with UK native plants. So community groups, groups we know will grow other plants, but we also encourage them to focus also on UK native plants as well. Another um, plan in the manifesto is to create a carbon garden. And that's to communicate stories around how carbon's captured in plants and soil and how we use this to mitigate climate change, um, for example, through planting trees and also looking at different carbon related services such as biofuels and the we have the plans for the garden it's in planning permission it's gone for for planning permission at the moment and we're waiting to hear and as soon as we hear it'll probably take us about a year or so to build the garden but we'll use it then very much for for learning and communicating about the importance of carbon uh, so people know so that's priority two priority three is train the next generation of experts yeah, new scientists and horticultural is critical to um, the future of life on Earth. And so Q has accelerated its work in this. And we offer three-month PhD placements for anybody across the UK who's doing a PhD. Part of their uh, PhD often includes a placement. So we offer those placements at Q, And we're very keen to attract um, PhD students. Uh, we also are working in partnership with a couple of universities, Queen Mary University of London and the Royal Holloway University of London to run in partnership uh, master's courses, MSc courses. And we've got three courses that we run, MSc in biodiversity and conservation, an MSc in plant and fungal taxonomy, diversity and conservation. And then an, an, the newest MSc is on global health. Uh, food security, sustainability, and biodiversity. I can imagine that the world that we're in now, there's actually a lot more demand for those courses as well. I think that you, yeah. you would, I, my, I imagine that they're oversubscribed multiple times. Yes, and they're, and they're open to international students. So we get quite a lot of international students coming. So that's really good. We had 60 students starting this year on on the courses, but you know, on a on a master's course, taking 20 students, I mean, it's quite an, an intense course. So... And I, I know that Q has that, you know, there, there's always, like you say, there's a demand for um, to study further in this area. And so there are, you know, it's still developing new the possibility of new courses with um, universities. That's good. Yeah. But, it, you know, one of the things for my remit is, is that I'm very keen about is that 
that there's a pathway and that we the queue considers its pathway from very early years you know attracting kids to become very interested in in nature and then going through and providing school programs that then encourage children to then take um science as a possible um career choice or be informed about science and you know which is one of the reasons why we launched the endeavor online program to make our resources that focus on you know their uh, educational resources that focus on cue science and horticulture but make them available to schools across the uk that's phenomenal and that's kind of that's a lot of the things that we're going to talk about today um mm-hmm. where, what point are we at we are, we've done point well three. okay so extend our reach extend reach that's right yes point four so <laughs> that's about <laughs> that, that's about Q being a go-to place for anyone and everyone uh to explore you know the importance of plants and fungi and how they add value to our lives and we we're working hard to expand our digital resources to to make sure that we can engage with as many people as possible but we also recognize that that there are a large numbers of um the population that would love to visit Q or have either have never heard about us or don't see Q as a place for them so we've we've set down a target to increase tenfold the number of visitors from underrepresented communities to the gardens and one of the ways that we've we've we we've done this straight away is to introduce a one pound ticket for people who are on universal credit yeah. or pension credit and that's to remove the economic barrier to visiting to date around 50 60,000 people have taken advantage of the initiative in that's in 18 months however our, we have a very ambitious director and he he feels that we should be able to dial this up to about 100,000 per year so that requires us then to go out specifically targeting people who are on universal credit and pension credit and say look you know you we want you to come to queue so um but on top of this we also run a range of programs uh specifically for people who face barriers to queue and that's not only economic that could be social barriers psychological or physical barriers that's priority four um, which I think we're going to go into more about some of that. We are, yeah. Three and four we're going to focus yeah. on. Yeah. So so the fifth one is um, influencing national and international opinion and policy. So in order to do that, we need to encourage debate and shape decision-making. And Q works with a lot of policymakers. Uh, you, you know, you can, Q's a large institution. We've got about 1,400 staff that work at Q and um, 800 volunteers. So we have lots of different teams and departments and we do have a department that focuses specifically on working with government and policymakers. And the idea is to support them to provide the evidence that Q brings to the table so that people can make well-informed decisions. One example is about tropical important plant areas, those TIPA for short. Q's working with six countries across the globe and the idea is to work with partners in the countries to help them identify important plant areas so that, that these areas will then be conserved. That involves an enormous amount of negotiation discussion. And to date, there's three TIPAs that have already been established. So that's that's really important for conservation of those areas. And of course, we are um, we work closely with DEFRA, that's our sponsoring uh, department in the UK government and they've recently asked you to take the leading role as a strategic science lead for a new 
institution, I suppose, that's been set up. It's it's not it's it's not a physical institution. It's a it's a consortium, and it's been called the Global Centre on Biodiversity for Climate. So what Q will do is write the research strategy that will define the key themes for funding calls that will be given money, and then the projects that will then provide the evidence to feed into policies that will then help make decisions about the impact of biodiversity on climate and people's livelihoods. So that's a really significant thing that Q's done. This is such a, an eye-opener for myself, you know, ha- having been a visitor to Q, you know, appreciated the beautiful gardens and the plants that you have there, but actually really having no idea about all of the things that happen in the background. So, you know, this is just, the, like you say, the, the attraction it's just one very, very small part of this huge organisation. There's mm, so much mm. that you do. It is. I hope this is eye-opening for people that are listening to this as well <laughs> because there's a lot going on here. The points from the manifesto, the key priorities from the manifesto are, I mean, each one of them you could take and break down into a different, mm. different podcast episode. Um, what we're going to talk about is points three and four. We're going to focus on those today. So point three was to train the next generation of experts and point four was to extend our reach. We're going to focus on them because there's a there's a huge desire at Q to improve inclusivity. And so mm-hmm. we're going to kind of break down what is happening with, within those points to, to actually help support do that. So you said that one of the key changes that Q is committed to achieving by 2020 2030 I think this is is to increase tenfold the number of visitors from the presently underrepresented communities mm-hmm. to the gardens mm-hmm. and obviously the gardens facilitate that the start of that learning journey right that it's exposing people to um you know I, I guess a world that they might not be familiar with and you know plants that they definitely won't be familiar with or, or or even just certain job roles that they might not have thought was for them. Mm-hmm. How do you begin to change the kind of views and attitudes from the general public who don't think that Q is for them, a place for them in the first place? Well, our, our aim is to break down that perception. So I think one of the things that has happened to be able to, to start on this journey is an organisational commitment to include everyone and and bringing everybody on board that we are really intent, you know, we really want to do this. So that's involved training our visitor-facing staff and our volunteers so that they provide a warm welcome welcome to anyone, regardless of their background. Um, We've trained our, our, our staff in accessibility and safeguarding and then diversity and inclusion. And this year we will roll out more diversity and inclusion training to, to staff across across all areas of the organization. So when people come here, it's making it's making sure that they feel that they are they feel safe and they feel represented in the gardens. But just providing a welcome is not going to be sufficient. We do need to reach out and connect with different communities to tell them that Q exists. You know, we we have people visiting Q from our local boroughs that have never heard of us, which is extraordinary, really. So we we really try and encourage them so to visit. So we have teams of um, staff who who in different teams will visit the different groups and they'll run workshops with the groups at their venues so that groups um, can find out about Q before they visit. They they realize that the people that, that come to visit them are really quite friendly and really excited about them coming to queue and and also people have said that they that 
that Kew is a very large um, place when you come here. I mean, people come and visit Kew, they come for a day, but you never see everything at Kew for a day. So people feel that it can be a bit intimidating, especially if they've not visited before. So when we bring people on site for the first time, you know, when we've made connections with community groups or, or other other teams, what we do is we'll offer a program or a tour so that when they come to, to visit us, that they make them feel comfortable about returning on their own. Sure. So it gives them that level of familiarity yeah. by doing the tour that they can mm-hmm. then come back and explore. They can do that again or they could go and explore the different areas that were that were particularly appealing to them. Yeah. 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 So we have we have all sorts of different programs and we have um a community access scheme that is as well as the um one pound ticket we have community access scheme so any groups that that provide services to people who face barriers from visiting queue which i said earlier you know sensory um psychological social barriers they can join um our community access scheme and, and they can get 60 tickets uh for 30 um sorry 60 tickets for 36 pounds mm-hmm. so that works out about 60 pence a ticket and they can always top up as they go along and then as part of the scheme they'll receive a newsletter and that informs them about the community activities that we run so that that's another way of connecting groups to feel that they can um the queue is a place for them to to come and visit that's lovely. I was going to ask about the community access scheme and what initiatives have been formed to kind of support the organisations to do that. Because I guess, you know, it's one thing. The welcome is great. Right. But that yeah. that means that people have to come and and, and get the welcome. So you, you, there's so much outreach that has to be mm. done to bring the people to you in the first place. Um, so the community access scheme, what kind of organisations would that be relevant for? Oh, all sorts. We have about 350 members on our access scheme. When I first started at Q, most of those groups, there was a fewer, fewer number of, of groups, but most of those groups were, I would say, for third age people, you know, people who um, different groups, but mainly servicing older people. Now we've got, you know, all sorts of groups. So we've got LGBT plus groups. We have deaf groups asian women's groups we have a whole different range of groups that see q as a place that they could join and and come and bring with their with their um, members and one of the things that we do run is continuing professional development training for group leaders uh, specifically for those leaders so that they then feel confident to come to q with their groups on their own and will provide resources for them to use in the landscapes and enjoy with Q. And that adds to that, I guess, like what you were saying earlier about, you know, you want this to be the start of the journey. You need it to Mm. be the start of the journey for those groups as well, don't you? You don't want it to just, you don't want to encourage them to come along once and that's like a a box that they've ticked. They've done Q, you know, you want them to come back and and keep re-engaging with the environment there. So that's brilliant to then be able to train those leaders to to take that Mm. bit on themselves. I was just to say, a few years ago, we started a community open week, which is a free week for community groups, any community groups across London. In fact, some groups come from further afield, but we put on a range of workshops and tours during that week for groups to come and in, and just experience queue. And the idea is, if we can, is to try and encourage them to sign up to the access scheme and, and continue, as you say, the journey and come back and find out more. And what about... I mean that I guess that's the the, the community access um, scheme, uh, and and obviously you've got kind of partnerships going going ongoing with kind of local community. What about 
national community groups. So how do you kind of expand your your remit into the wider audience of people that aren't located near Kew? Yeah, that that's a good question, because that costs money, doesn't it, for them to come to, to Kew. Mm. So we have had people come from Birmingham and, and people can join. We've initially contained it within the M25. So a lot of people coming within the M25, but we've just removed that barrier. Now, I mean, it it didn't need to be there. And we have seen some people, some groups coming from outside. We don't have bursaries um, to be able to provide, sadly, to, to groups to come to, to queue. They are, of course, very welcome. I think one of the things is that we, we've just brought somebody on board this year who is doing some more community outreach to going out and, and, and trying to connect with new groups to, to, to visit queue. And part of that will involve providing um, producing some um, marketing materials w- that can then travel further than just our yeah. confines. So we'll see. We may we may then receive other groups in from much further afield, which would be great. And also Wakehurst, our sister site, has set up a community access scheme, scheme as well. So they will hopefully then encourage those organisations and groups in further south of London. Amazing. How is Q helping to remove barriers and improve access to nature for, for children and families, both kind of on-site and off-site? We've been running an early years program since about 2018. Before that, we had a family program and we've made connections with children's centres in our local boroughs. And, and every, every borough, every county in the UK will have a children's centre or, or multiple children's centres. And the aim of the children's centres is to try and um, help those families that may slip through the net to be able to ensure that they don't. And so what we have done is we have a, a recent project, which is to work with children's centres in London. And we're working in five boroughs with different, about 10 children's centres. And the, the team is going to the children's centres, running nature-based play sessions in the children's centres. And then they, over the summer, we invite the families to come to queue we give them funding to do that. We refund their travel. We run activities on site. And then later in the year, we've been running training sessions specifically for the children's centre leaders so that they can then take this work forward when Q has to step back from going to the children's centres. And we're going to, we've got this project running for about three or four years now, which is great. But, you know, on top of this, we also run on-site sessions for early years. And Half of them are paid for sessions for those families that can afford to pay for earlier sessions. And then the money that we use from that, we then subsidize those families from children's centers, community groups that can't afford to pay. So we try and get a balance because, you know, we don't have ourselves have an endless pot of money and we're constantly looking for funding to try and support this work. It's really hard, isn't it, to get that balance right? You, you, There is a commercial aspect here, right? You have to make money to be able to do all of these incredible projects and initiatives that you have. Yeah. Um, but you also need the funding to be able to support the incredible initiatives that you're running to be able to allow everybody access to it. So it's it's like a, a vicious circle. What about schools outreach? Um, how are you kind of broadening your reach to engage all schools and how does that become more inclusive against the manifesto? So we've been very intent on saying that we want to um, extend our reach to embrace all schools. 
sort of all schools in, di in, in different areas, but also at the moment we have about 60, 70, well, it's now changed to 60% of pupils that come on site are from primary schools. We want to increase the number of secondary school pupils that we engage with. Um, children make career decisions around their GCSEs and their A-levels. And many children from certain schools, uh, from more deprived areas will go for general science rather than triple science and all the research shows if you if if children choose triple science they're more likely to do science at a levels so looking to try and influence those children in their career choices is, is important for us and that means that we're we want to up, increase the number of um, secondary schools that we engage with and uh, we also have an intent on, on increasing the number of schools that have higher pupil premium because in London pupil premium is you probably know is that those children who are generally on uh, those children on free school meals the school will receive a, um, a a bursary from the government to try and reduce the um, attainment gap between those children on, on right. free school meals and those children on not so we have um, had bursaries we don't have any at the moment but we have had bursaries then to attract specifically those schools on much higher pupil premium and we've shifted the dial um, on this and we have higher numbers of schools with higher pupil premium um, students and those schools then we're trying to influence and think about um, science as a possible aspect that they can consider further in their careers so in planning permission at the moment we're looking at building a new learning center at Kew which would be really exciting. And we're going through um, ecology um, reports at the moment before we can get the planning permission through. But part of the learning centre will in include four science laboratories. And so pupils can come on site to Kew, will be able to come on site to Kew and do science experiments in the heart of a scientific um, organisation. And all pupils doing GCSE and A-levels have to do practical science experiments. We know from all the research that, that teachers don't necessarily feel confident in teaching about plants. So this is something that Q really can uniquely offer schools to come to Q and bring their pupils and get hands on with um, plant uh, and fungal science oh experiments. Goodness. That would be incredible. Yes. And also it will provide us with the facilities to be able to do CPD online as well. So that's something that we're really keen to do. That's a really interesting mm. side of this is because uh, you, you know, I know that one of your goals is to engage with all schools. Now, all schools aren't local to Q. My school nope. definitely wasn't local to Q. Um, so, you know, how do you do that? How do you how do you make that jump from engaging with local schools that can actually, you know, access the site? What can you do digitally that can engage with more, more schools and more people, um, yeah. regardless of location? And one of the reasons that we are committed to engaging with all schools is because Q is a, a national institution and we are funded partly about 28% of our funding comes from the government. So it's paid for by taxes by people all over the country. So it, our commitment is to, to make our resources as available as widely as possible. And um, so we have an online program called Endeavour and that's a bank of resources specifically for teachers on all sorts of different um, it's linked to strongly linked to the national curriculum, but all sorts of different um, activities that uh, teachers can use then to teach about plant science and 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 fungi. 
it involved, but it, it straddles the national curriculum, not only in science, but, you know, for the um, primary ages, it will maybe, it, it will also look at history, it will look at um, geography, etc., so that we can try and make it our resources as relevant as possible to, to teachers. Yeah, I, it's, that is a phenomenal resource that, you know, maybe more teachers need to hear about that. I think I would have been really excited. I did do science at school, I can remember. I think I'd be, I'd have been really excited about doing something that was connected to Kew Gardens. Like there's a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a quite a a big buzz about that. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know why, like just there's a connection to that organization that I think would have been really exciting to know that you were working on something that had been created by Kew. Oh, that's nice to hear that. We, we have a youth program, which, you know, I'm very proud of. I think that the youth team is phenomenal, as as are all the teams. But we run a youth explainer program, and that's on site. And young people come for um, a training program every Saturday for six months, and they go behind the scenes. They meet the horticulturist scientists, and they learn communication skills. And what they do is they we bring a game designer on on site, and they learn how to design their own game to to play with the public about endangered plants or or habitats and the young people have to work together in groups and they produce this game and then six months after you know once they finish their training they then become explainers in the in the glass houses and the public actually they love interacting with the young people and and they bring a real buzz about it so that that's been a very successful program and on the back of this we've developed a young environmental leader award and the idea is that that young people will develop their project and they will evidence different dimensions of leadership through their project. So they'll keep a portfolio and they have to evidence how they've developed their leadership skills during this journey. And then they, then we award them with a young environmental leader award. And that's something that we can, we can, we do in house, but then the possibility is then to scale that for, to make that available to young people outside queue as well. That would be incredible, wouldn't it? That would, yeah, that mm-hmm. would be a really special thing to be involved in. Okay, so we said earlier we're recording this. It's January 2024. Wow. Um, how is Q delivering against the manifesto after its first full two years? Well, I, it, Q is nothing if not ambitious. <laughs> uh, and we, we, there is a real strong commitment to ending the extinction crisis. I mean, I, we can't do this alone and we have to do it in partnership. But I would say that we're, we're firmly on the way to achieving many of the deliverables in the manifesto. And there's a real, you know, people have really bought, bought into, the staff have really bought into the manifesto. And you see that through, we run a, a staff survey every year and, and ask for feedback about whether, you know, what people think about the manifesto, what, how, you know, do they feel their work is contributing to delivering it? And we get very high, you know, scores on that consistently. We have since the manifesto was published. Um, you know, one of the one of the deliverables in there is to revision the the palm house that I sit opposite in my in my office and we want that to become net zero and engage new generations with science and conservation work and make our data available to everyone so we are moving towards that and and we we're looking at we've got some seed funding to be able to do this so that that the I'd say that the bricks are in place and you know the foundations have been laid and much of the work requires external funding and partnerships, but we have a vision. And I think 
people in organisations uh, recognise what Q's work is as vital. Um, and I don't think that's overstating it. And uh, But that helps to open doors for support. So I think I think we're, we're moving forwards. And I think there's a very positive um, feel about the work that we're doing. We're very fortunate. Yeah, it sounds it sounds very positive. And there's, you know, like we said earlier, there's so much to cover in this studio. And, I, and thank you for coming <laughs> on and just talking about a very small element of all of yeah. the incredible things that are actually happening at Q. So um, we always end our podcast by asking our guests to uh, recommend a book that you love, something that you, you love personally or something that's helped shape your career in some way. What have you chosen for us today? Well, I, I chose a book that um, is is a phenomenal book and by a woman who is phenomenal. And um, it is related to my work, but I chose the book because I think it is so inspirational. It's a, it's a book called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest by Suzanne Simard. And we awarded her the 16th Q International Medal for her work and her devotion to championing biodiversity in forests. She's she's worked in British Columbia all her life in Canada, and she was a pioneer of the theory that plants communicate with each other through a huge subterranean fungal network. And the book reveals how trees connect and cooperate with each other, and that each forest contains a hub, hub trees, so, so mother trees, and that these trees in the forest play a critical role in the flow of information and resources. So I feel that the book will change the way people look at forests. Um, they're not simply a source for timber or pulp, but they are really part of a complex interdependent circle of life. And I think it's it's a magnificent book. And I, I well, if one reader reads it and, and enjoys it, I think that would be brilliant. Do you know what? I have to read this book. So this is the second. <laughs> this is the second podcast, interestingly, where oh no, this is a, no, no, not the not the book. The book has never oh, been recommended before. No, this is a completely new one. So um, David Green, uh, head of innovation at Blenheim, was on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, and he talked about how trees communicate with each other, and that was that was a new a new thing for me I had no idea that trees talk to each other and and the way that he the way that he described it was really interesting and now this has come up in this as well and I feel like someone <laughs> is sending me a message that I need to read this book so <laughs> that's going to go top of my list right everybody listeners um you know what to do if you want to win a copy of Julia's book then head over to our Twitter account and retweet this episode announcement with the words I want Julia's book and you could potentially be learning about how trees communicate with each other and, and are a vital part of uh, an ecosystem. Thank you. It's, that's fascinating. Everything that you've talked about today is is so exciting. And I know that there's so much work still to be done. Um, thank you for coming on and sharing about all of the things that you do there and all of the things that you're hoping to achieve. I've no doubt that you will do them. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, it's a real privilege. Thank you very much, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, 
a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.